This is what it feels like when America's made great again. I, uh... Yeah. Doesn't feel so great. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI News Radio. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're heard coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, still your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com with the delightful and lovely Desi Doyen. Yes, I am here. Still by my side, still hanging on, still white-knuckling it. As a lot of us may have to for uh, for quite a while. Uh, coming up today, uh, Tuesday's presidential election was the was the first in 50 years to be run without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Following Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2013, gutting the central provision of the landmark act. Following the lifting of those protections, uh, GOP-controlled states, you may have heard, made it more difficult to vote in more than a dozen states across the country, some of them crucial to Donald Trump's apparent victory on Tuesday. So as we try and figure out uh, just what the hell happened and didn't, did voter suppression made much, much easier after the Supreme Court's horrible Shelby County decision in 2013? Did that help flip the election results for Donald Trump this year? And why did the corporate media spend so little time covering something that would be so central to this election? The nation's Ari Berman, whose coverage of these issues has become indispensable, uh, frankly, uh, to, to many of us, at least to those of us who do report on these issues and who do think they are important to our nation. He will join us momentarily to answer those questions and more as we can. Uh, I'm getting a lot of questions as well. Uh, folks are, are, are speaking up about this in the comments section at bradblog.com quite a bit, sending me uh, email uh, at bradcast at bradblog.com, on Facebook, on Twitters, where I am, the Bradblog, about whether the results uh, reported by the voting systems can actually be trusted. Well, the short answer is no. 
Our election system is never built on trust. It's built on checks and balances and citizen oversight. At least that's the theory. And yet every state in this country still uses electronic voting systems on which the results can be very easily manipulated, not just by an outside hacker, but also by an inside manipulator. They can also fail due to error. Uh, Before the election, uh, there was a lot of talk about concerns from people other than me for uh, a nice change uh, that the election could actually be hacked. And then we got assurances from the administration after they told us it could be hacked. Uh, They told us, oh, it can't be hacked. The presidential race at least can't be. Uh, But that was nonsense. Of course, it could have been hacked. It certainly could have been manipulated by an insider. But by outside hackers or uh, much more easily by inside manipulators, was it? Well, we still don't know and we may never know due to the type of electronic voting and tabulation systems that we use, both OpScan and uh, DRE, direct recording electronic touchscreens, those 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens I always warn about. So a lot of uh, we can't know. A lot of folks are now trying to pour over results as they're still coming in, being canvassed, provisional ballots being checked, all of that stuff, trying to make sense of those results, comparing them to pre-election polls and exit polls and noting disparities between them. But as I said during the primary race, when it was Bernie Sanders supporters who were claiming without evidence that Hillary Clinton or the DNC had stolen the primary Disparities between exit polling and and actual results only tell us so much. It it may be a red flag, a yellow flag, however you want to uh, regard it, but only human beings actually counting actual paper ballots can tell us whether the results as reported were right or wrong. So where folks would like to file for uh, hand counts uh, in jurisdictions where that is available, please feel free. In jurisdictions where you have paper ballots to actually count, please feel free. Those 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting jurisdictions, good luck. You can make uh, public records requests perhaps for electronic ballot images if they're available, audit trails if they're available. Uh, closing uh, uh, poll closing tapes at the end of the night. They print out results on the uh, touchscreen machines. You can make public request records for that and try to compare them with the results as being reported by the uh, by the counties and the states. I'm always in favor of it. And I will keep looking at it. And people who are emailing me, I, I'm, I'm watching. I'm uh, paying attention. I'm looking at what you're uh, seeing out there. I'm looking into stuff myself. I've been making calls, sending emails when uh, questions come up about certain results. But to answer some of those uh, many uh, questions, the folks who have asked me, was this race electronically rigged in some fashion? My answer is, as always, I have no idea. At least until and unless paper ballots are actually counted by human beings publicly. And that is why I spend so much time before elections, year round, pointing out the dangers of using the type of electronic voting and tabulation systems that we now use in all 50 states. By the time we get to this point in an election, you know, if there's questions about the results, it's very difficult to do a damned thing about it. You know, I've wanted to say all week, uh, Des, since Tuesday, can you hear me now? <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. I, I don't want to rub it in. I, 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 I can only do what I can do. 
So, uh, okay then, now, let's say now is the time to start figuring out how to urge your local election officials to do publicly hand-counted paper ballot pilot projects before the next big election. More on that in the days and months uh, and years to come, I suspect. Um, all right, speaking of trying to figure things, we will, I will keep uh, reporting on it. We'll keep looking at it, and I know there are a lot of concerns. Um, so we'll we'll stay on this. Don't worry. Uh, but you need to do so, too. You need to do your part. Anyway, speaking of trying to figure things out, uh, many of the uh, Trump voters, <laughs> as the New York Times suggests today, uh, have absolutely no idea what they actually voted for. And there's this great temptation, uh, even by me, to call those voters stupid. Uh, and some of them certainly may be, but I, I don't to blame voters. I, I actually blame the media for failing to properly inform them. The New York Times uh, today offers several examples of, of all of the above, both the, uh, the disinformed and or misled uh, Trump voters, as well as the corporate media's failure, including the New York Times, to actually inform the electorate as per their constitutional responsibility to do so. Richard Fawcett, writing in the, uh, writing in the New York Times, says, uh, Coursing beneath the boisterous chanting of the president-elect's name on Tuesday night, that single syllable that will now forever conjure more than just a gilded real estate empire were the more nuanced hopes, fears, and expectations of the Americans who shocked the world and even themselves by electing Donald J. Trump president of the United States. It was a combination of emotions that felt as novel and raw as the candidate himself. In interviews around the country, many supporters said they had hoped for great things under President Trump, though many also said they had no idea what they were in for. Now, that's very nice. Richard Fawcett used a lot of lovely language there. I wish he had spent as much time sort of fact-checking the rest of what he was about to report. Here's uh, some examples of, of the things that he found out in talking to uh, these Trump supporters. Mark Harris, a businessman from Georgia in one of Atlanta's northern suburbs, uh, could hardly contain his glee over Tuesday's outcome. It was, he said, an unrestrained rejection of politicians, lobbyists and the news media. Quote, the American people are sick and tired of the government in Washington, D.C., he said. <laughs> Uh, of course, Donald Trump has been marching around saying, drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. Get rid of the lobbyists and the insiders. He's been saying that repeatedly on the campaign trail over the past month. Uh, to, you know, I guess turning D.C. insiders and lobbyists into terrorists, because isn't that what they used to say about the terror? Isn't that what George W. Bush used to say about the terror? We're going to have to drain. We're going to drain the swamp. Oh, that's right. He yeah. did. We're going to drain the swamp right. that creates all those terrorists. Right. Now we're going to drain the swamp of all the politicians in D.C. and the lobbyists and so forth. Uh, more on that specific uh, point specifically in a moment. So stick a pin in that. But uh, Fawcett goes on to say, uh, at Republicans' election night party in Phoenix, a pair of friends, Linda Wright and Susan Cheatham, pumped their fists and thanked Jesus for Mr. Trump's victory. He's not going to raise our taxes, said Ms. Wright of Phoenix. He's going to protect our borders, said Ms. Cheatham of Scottsdale. He won't take our weapons away, Ms. Wright said. You mean like Obama didn't? Uh, after all of those years, you were told that Obama was going to take your weapons away. He actually expanded them. 
He will appoint Supreme Court justices who will protect our Constitution, Ms. Cheatham said. Yeah, protect the Constitution. That's key, Ms. Wright said. They agreed that Mr. Trump represents their vision of America, a place that loves God and cares for its military. Nobody has the right to come into our country and steal it from me, Ms. Wright said. If you don't like our country, don't move here. Don't come here and try to impose your religion on us. Who has imposed anybody's religion on anybody? Yeah, Miss Cheatham says, Sharia law. Oh. <laughs> she spouts. Oh. Out of nowhere. Now, right. mind you, Richard Fawcett of the New York Times has done no... Those comments you heard, those were me uh, replying to the things that he has not said. He's just reporting what they said. He's just reporting what the Trump supporters said. He's not correcting any of this. Here's more. I've been called a bigot. I've been called a white supremacist, Bridge Webb said. 21-year-old guy. I pride myself on being a good guy. I go out of my way to help people. All of these things are so unfair, and it's all because I said I like Donald Trump, who, I will add, Richard Fawcett doesn't, is a bigot and a white supremacist. Mr. Webb, they say, grew up in a Mormon family in Elk Ridge, Utah, community outside the conservative city of Provo, though it is a safe place and though Utah is humming along with 3.4% unemployment, that's basically full employment, Mr. Webb said he felt creeping fears about the threats of terrorism after San Bernardino and Orlando. Apparently he doesn't feel creeping fears against the 32,000 gun deaths a year. The attacks on Planned Parenthood clinics, the attacks on mosques, he doesn't care about that. And Richard Fawcett of the New York Times doesn't point them out either. He worried about the American economy, uh, that it would not have a stable job for him. He hopes to become a police officer, and he worried that Mrs. Clinton would pass gun restrictions that could disarm law enforcement. I wonder where he got that idea. But did you hear that? Law enforcement. Right. She's going to disarm law enforcement. Which is insane. Where did he get that idea? I don't know, but Richard Vossett of the New York Times does not bother to point out that, no, uh, Mrs. Clinton has never called for disarming law enforcement. Uh, supporters like uh, Jean Koval and her husband Alan see themselves as part of a global, global movement against corrupt government insiders. Neither could specifically say what change they wanted Mr. Trump to make, but they voiced concern about rising health care costs. Ms. Koval said her parents' health care premiums recently increased $600 a month. I don't know if they did or not, but let's say they did. Did the New York Times bother to point out that we have the slowest growth in the increase of uh, premium rates in decades in this country since the passage of, yes, the Affordable Care Act? And that's, yes, even with the rise in premium in premiums that is now coming for uh, some Obamacare uh, uh, members this year. None of that was pointed out in the entire article outlining the hopes and the dreams of these Trump fans. Uh, Richard Fawcett does not once not once set the record straight on any of these statements of these uh, these Trump supporters. He just passes it on. So you can argue that these folks are, are, are stupid or what they uh, that they're misinformed. And that the, the fact is the New York Times does nothing to help inform them here. It just reports what they say. So if you're counting on the corporate media to improve or, or to do their goddamn job of educating the electorate, electorate under a, a Trump administration, well, you may be disappointed again and still. But emails. Yeah, Hillary Clinton, emails. Now, going back to what I had said, that, that guy who, who said uh, that uh, he was gleeful about Trump winning because the American people are sick and tired of the government in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, this was uh, unrestrained. This was an unrestrained rejection of politicians and lobbyists and the news media. Well, here's some news. Um, yeah, Donald Trump uh, has been calling for draining the swamp of those uh, politicians and those lobbyists. Well, the lobbyists are all over Donald Trump's transition team. This according to an organizational chart that was obtained by Politico showing who's guiding the handover for various agencies. Here's uh, here's an idea of this. Uh, what's going on right now in your government in the transition in Donald Trump's uh Donald Trump's new administration, Cindy Hayden of the tobacco company Altria. She's in charge of Homeland Security for the uh, transition here. Steve Hart, the chairman of William and Jensen, there he's in charge of labor. His clients include Visa, American Council of Life Insurers, Anthem, Coca-Cola, General Electric, HSBC, Pfizer, Pharma, and United Airlines. He's in charge of labor. For the Energy Department, Michael McKenna of MWR Strategies, a lobbyist uh, for a Southern Company and Dow Chemical. For Interior, David Bernhardt, who lobbies for Westland Water District, used to uh, represent Freeport LNG Expansion and Rosemont Copper Company Mining. Uh, he was the Interior Department solicitor, deputy solicitor, d- deputy chief of staff, counselor to the secretary of the interior and director of the Office of Congressional and Legislative Affairs under George W. Bush. And then he became a lobbyist. And now he's going back uh, to work in in government under Donald Trump. Michael Torrey he's in charge of agriculture. Uh, he uh, he has his own firm that represents the American Beverage Association and the Crop Insurance and Reinsurance Bureau. Mira Ricardel is, is working on defense. She recently worked for Boeing. We're really uh, draining the swamp here in Washington, D.C., aren't we? Heck of a job. Dan, De, Dan DeMico, uh, he uh, is overseeing the U.S. Trade, he's US trade representatives, Representative's office. He serves on Duke Energy's board. He represents a steel company. Ken Blackwell, our old friend, J. Kenneth Blackwell, the Secretary of State from 2004 in Ohio. Um, who helped uh, greatly uh, make sure that George W. Bush was uh, announced the winner of that state. Uh, He's in charge of domestic issues. He's not a lobbyist, but he's a senior fellow at the uh, Family Research Council. The Trump's transition transition team has been flooded with interests from mainstream Republicans and Washington insiders about working for the Trump administration, according to Politico's uh, Nancy Cook and Andrew Restuccia. The New York Times picks up some more of these. Jeffrey Eisenbach is a, uh, a consultant who has worked for years on behalf of Verizon and other telecom uh, clients. He's heading the team that's helping to pick staff members at the FCC. Uh, so much for, what was that, net neutrality? Yeah. Yeah. Michael Catanzaro is a lobbyist whose clients include Devon Energy and Sauna Oil and Gas. He holds the Energy Independence Portfolio. Peter Weiner, uh, who served as the uh, served in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and George Bush before becoming a speechwriter for George W. Bush, said this whole idea that this was an outsider and going to destroy the political establishment and drain the swamp were the lines of a con man. And guess what? He is being exposed as just that. He is failing the first test and he should be held accountable for it. Do you think he will be? By whom? Michael McKenna, another lobbyist, is helping to pick uh, key administration officials who will oversee energy uh, policy. He has a client list that uh, has included the Southern Company, one of the most vocal critics of efforts to prevent climate change. 
by putting uh, limits on emissions from coal-burning power plants. David Malpass, a former chief economist at Bear Stearns, the Wall Street investment bank that collapsed during the 2008 financial crisis. He's overseeing economic issues oh, goody. for the uh, Trump administration, as well as operations at the Treasury Department. Uh, so, uh, you uh, Trump supporters... This is what you got. This is what you asked for. You fell for a con man. And um, you probably won't even read this because this is actually reported by The New York Times. We don't read The New York Times. They're not reliable. We can't read. They're just lying to us. So, uh, yeah, so much for uh, for draining the swamp. Um Bruce Freed said is uh, a non a guy at a nonprofit the Center for Political Accountability said this is one of the reasons you had such anger among voters people rigging the system gaming the system this he says represents more of the same you thought the George W Bush years were bad you ain't seen nothing yet all right speaking of the corporate media not doing their job of informing the electorate uh, voter turnout was down in 2016, at least in nationwide totals, lower than it has ever been since the year 2000, when, by the way, the Democratic candidate that year also won the popular vote, but ultimately lost to the Republican legitimately or otherwise in the Electoral College. So what role did voter suppression, if any, have on all of that? And what role did the corporate media have in inadequately informing the electorate? about the new Republican war on voting rights. Ari Berman joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we've got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the broadcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep the broadcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. What is love? And the evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. Yeah, still here. This is my democracy. You won't go telling me. My vote don't matter anymore. It does matter. will continue to fight for every single one of them. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, that's why we play that song so often on this program by uh, Victoria Parks of our, uh, of our affiliate WGRN up in Columbus, Ohio. In, uh, in March of 2015, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Bloody Sunday March for Voting Rights in Selma, Alabama, and the subsequent passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, President Barack Obama stood at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma with former President George W. Bush by his side 
and dozens of elected officials and members of Congress in attendance, and he called for the restoration of the Voting Rights Act, which the U.S. Supreme Court had substantively gutted in 2013's Shelby County ruling, heading us straight towards the first presidential election in 50 years that would be run without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And with effort, we can protect the foundation stone of our democracy for which so many marched across this bridge, and that is the right to vote. Right now, in 2015, 50 years after some, there are laws across this country designed to make it harder for people to vote. As we speak, more such laws are being proposed. Meanwhile, the Voting Rights Act, the culmination of so much blood, so much sweat and tears, the product of so much sacrifice in the face of wanton violence, the Voting Rights Act stands weakened. Its future subject to political rancor. How can that be? The Voting Rights Act was one of the crowning achievements of our democracy the result of Republican and Democratic efforts. President Reagan signed its renewal when he was in office. President George W. Bush signed its renewal when he was in office. One hundred members of Congress have come here today to honor people who are willing to die for the right to protect it. If we want to honor this day, let that hundred go back to Washington and gather four hundred more and together pledge to make it their mission to restore that law this year. That's how we honor those on this bridge. That was President Obama on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, uh, 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, and the, the march for the right to vote. Of course, Republicans in Congress refused to answer that call. And more than a dozen GOP-controlled states implemented restrictions that made it more difficult to vote in the 2016 election. But while Republicans in Congress refused to act, what was the corporate media's excuse for not covering the consequences of all of this before the election, about which they were so obsessed? On horse race matters, at least, if not on substance. After all, voting rights affects the horse race as much as anything, and here... Here you had uh, two presidents of the U.S. gathered to call on lawmakers uh, to fix what the U.S. Supreme Court had so badly broken just two years earlier, back in March of 2015. So did all of these new restrictions on voting passed by Republicans in Republican states, did all of that help lead to the still puzzling results that we saw on Tuesday when turnout was the lowest that we have seen in more than 15 years? Here to discuss all of this uh, is one of the few folks in the media who did not ignore this issue, who did as much as anyone could to try and get the word out about the disastrous effects of gutting the Voting Rights Act uh, this year in state after state for voter after voter, no matter who, no matter who they had hoped to vote for and no matter whether the results might have an effect on any particular election, be it for president or school board or dog catcher. The fight to vote and the right to vote still matters in this country, or at least it should, a hell of a lot more than our corporate media whose job, whose responsibility it is to inform and educate the electorate, 
seems to have been abandoned once again this year. Ari Berman is a contributing writer for The Nation magazine and author of the landmark new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, cited by The New York Times as one of the best books of last year, documenting the uniquely American and all too harrowing and continuing tale of the minority fight to simply cast a vote in this country and... Given what happened this year, I suspect the next print edition will need to include several new chapters, unfortunately. Ari Berman, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Hey, Brad. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, Listen, first of all, let me just offer my thanks uh, for your tireless efforts uh, and, frankly, heroic efforts this year to try and get the word out about what was going on and affecting so many voters simply trying to cast a vote, to participate in their own representative democracy. Uh, Some of them who had had done so for, for decades and finally found that they could not, all of a sudden, since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, uh, they couldn't do so this year. So before we get into some of the specifics of, of whatever effect all of this may have played on the outcome of last Tuesday's election, I shared a lot of your reporting here, Ari, over the past many months. So many of those stories that you told were heart-wrenching at times. Was there one personal story that struck you in this new fight for voting rights uh, uh, more than another that you can share with us today? Well, thank you so much for for the kind words, Brad, and, and thank you for all you've done on this as well. Um, there there have been a lot of of crazy stories mm-hmm. um, that I told before the election. I went back and and, and looked over all of them. I, I think the one story that that stuck with me the most was this uh, guy by the name of Eddie Lee Holloway Jr., mm-hmm. who was a 58 uh, year old African American man who moved from Illinois in Chicago to Milwaukee um, in Wisconsin. And he tried to get a Wisconsin photo ID to be able to vote. And he went to the DMV and he brought his uh, Illinois photo ID, his Social Security card, um, and his birth certificate. But they did not give him an ID because his birth certificate, instead of saying Eddie Lee Holloway Jr., said Eddie Jr. Holloway instead because of a clerical error when it was issued. So he had the same first name, the same last name, mm. had other documents that supported who he was, but they said they couldn't give him an ID for voting because his birth certificate was different. So they said, go to the vital records office downtown in Milwaukee. He went down there, he you know, said, how much will it cost to amend my birth certificate? They said between 400 and $600. So he, he paid for his own bus ride back to Illinois, where he was from. He went to oh. the vital records office in Illinois and he said, I want to amend my birth certificate. And they told him he needed to bring his high school and his vaccination records to be able to do this. It's such a crazy story. Then he went to Decatur, where he was from, mm-hmm. got, his, got his high school records, amazingly, went back to Springfield. Then they told him he had to get his full Social Security statement. He went back to Wisconsin. He got all his documents in order. He... he, uh, he talked to Illinois Vital Records. He said, can I email or fax you my information? He said, no, you have to come back in person. And at that point, he just gave up on trying to get the photo ID he needed in Wisconsin to be able to vote. So this one guy made seven different trips to two different states and spent $200 of his own money just trying to get an ID to vote, and he wasn't able to. And I, I asked his lawyer, because a lot of this story came from an ACLU deposition, I asked his lawyer 
did Eddie ever get an ID for voting in Wisconsin? And his lawyer told me he moved back to Illinois. Um, so he, he, it's just such an incredible story that, you know, this, this guy spent all this time. He'd been 58 years old. He'd voted all his life, and he wasn't able to vote in Wisconsin. He was so frustrated, he ended up going back to Illinois. So that was, that was one of those lazy voters we heard about who uh, just won't take the effort to get the ID that they need under... And, and that's what's so annoying about it. Everyone says, well, why didn't he have an ID? He had an ID. Right. He had an ID from Illinois. He had an ID he needed to do everything else, to buy liquor, to go on a plane, yep. to do all of these things that people claim you can't do without an ID. He had an ID. Yep. And he had supporting documentation to show who he was. You could have easily looked at his Social Security card or his birth certificate and figured out this is the same person. So it's so crazy, and then the fact that there's people who spend all of this effort. I mean, how many people would give up after they went to one place, um, let alone going to seven different places? So um, this whole narrative, uh, the, the ways that people have justified voter suppression has been the, really, to me, the most disturbing, mm. disturbing aspect of this whole process. And that was in uh, Wisconsin, uh, which sort of brings us to the uh, to the issue we're looking at here now. Uh, there was, uh, last I looked, and what, what is the numbers up to, about twenty five or 30,000 uh, vote difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton with Donald Trump uh, reportedly taking the state of Wisconsin for the first time in, in, uh, in decades at this point. Uh, and yet the, the, the trial for, for over that photo ID restriction in Wisconsin, which was in effect for this election, found that some uh, the federal trial found that some 300,000 voters were kind of like Eddie Lee Holloway, did not have the type of uh, type of uh, registration, uh, type of ID, the specific type of ID now required to vote in Wisconsin, 300,000 in a state where there was a 27,000 vote margin between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So I know it's still early, and uh, we're still tabulating and canvassing in all of the states. It's going to take a while to gather more data on all of this. But for the moment, setting aside whether it would have affected the broader presidential election results, the Electoral College itself, are there states like Wisconsin at this time where it seems that voter suppression, uh, these new voting restrictions, might have flipped the presidential results, at least in that state? Well, I don't think we, we know exactly ever why states are decided in the way they are, why people decide to, to not show up. Um, but I think it was a factor. I mean, to dismiss it, 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 it's a, it's, it was a factor is to deny reality. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I talked to multiple voters who either jumped through lots of different hoops to be able to vote or didn't vote at all because uh, they didn't have the right documentation or they couldn't get the right documentation or they got so frustrated with the entire process. And it's impossible to quantify how many people showed up and were turned away, uh, how many people didn't show up because they didn't want to deal with it, how many people thought they, they wouldn't be able to vote. How, you know, there's so many mm-hmm. different factors that go into it. Um, the head of elections in Milwaukee, uh, where turnout was down 15%, and 40,000 fewer people voted in 2016, and, and that is not only a very heavy, heavily Democratic city, but a city where 70% of African Americans in the state live. He said that he believed voter ID had an impact, that the parts of the city where voter ID was going to have the biggest impact, where people are transient, where they're lower income, where they're more likely to be people of color, that turnout declines there the most. And again, we don't know why turnout mm-hmm. declined there the most. But we know that 
everyone was making these arguments that, oh, when you have voter ID, turnout goes up because people feel so confident that the election will be fair. Well, here we have an example of turnout was, was dramatically down in the exact place in Milwaukee where we expected the law to have the most impact, and it declined the most in the parts of the city where they expected it would hit the hardest. So it was a factor. To me, it's the wrong question to ask, though, Brad. I know you're not asking this question, yeah. but regardless of if it affected the election, the fact that we made it harder for people to vote yep. for no good reason, to me, is a scandal. That we're even talking about the whole idea of voter suppression in 2016 is a scandal. Whether it decided the election, to me, is secondary to the fact that this was being done in a supposed democracy in this day and age. Which is a, you know, a, b- a point that I've been making for years. It doesn't matter to me whether it's one voter you know, who is affected by these restrictive laws or if it's millions of voters. I mean, the fact is people should not have their rights taken away, period. Uh, and it does, uh, no matter what we end up learning about the presidential race, and, and, and you're right, it's impossible to know who didn't show up just because they thought they did not have the the right type of ID, uh, whether it affects the presidential race with these big numbers, you've also have the you know the smaller the smaller elections, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, state and local uh, uh, races with much smaller margins uh, that would be much more likely to be impacted by these schemes. Uh, all completely aside from the presidential race, right? I mean these these voter suppression uh, schemes have an even greater effect on all of these other races. They do. And, you know, there's lots of different types of voter suppression. I mean, there are laws like voter ID laws that keep some people from the polls and make it harder for others to participate. Then there's things like felon disenfranchisement laws, Mm -hmm. where Florida just basically blocked one in five African Americans from voting by taking away the right to vote for ex-offenders. I mean, that, and that didn't get any coverage. I mean, not any coverage at all, even though yep. in Florida, in Virginia, in Kentucky, in southern states in particular, it, it had such a disproportionate impact. There were changes to voter registration, for example. States that made it extremely hard to register to vote. States that cut off voter registration deadlines weeks before the election. That led to hundreds of thousands of people not being able to even register to vote, to even have the option to be able to vote. Uh, there were facts that there were polling places that were closed that led to very long lines and people didn't show up or they didn't know where their polling place was. So there were lots of different impacts in the election. And simply to ask the question of, did it decide to the election, is, which a lot of people in the media are now asking, mm-hmm. is taking uh, a very, very, very narrow view of the issue and asking the wrong question. And so when people read my reporting and they hear these stories of people who are disenfranchised but they say it doesn't matter i have to ask them well what matters to democracy then i mean isn't the right to vote the most fundamental aspect of a democracy and if you're not disturbed by people being turned away from the polls uh, there's something wrong with how you're approaching this well and and they're not disturbed and you're right by the way florida i'm looking at this looking at the numbers here a little over a hundred thousand vote difference and uh what is it more than a million uh who have been uh, disenfranchised through those felon disenfranchisement laws in florida so yeah it makes a difference and for the record we did report on that but uh the mainstream media does not and after each and every debate ari berman throughout the primary uh and in the general you would tweet 
uh, the number, uh, you know, a- after each and every one of them, I think, you would tweet how many, you know, oh, well, we've had uh, 15 debates so far, and uh, you were pointing out that how many had gone by without a single question about voting rights, despite so many of those candidates, by the way, in the GOP debates, living in extremely, or, you know, from extremely affected states when it came to voter suppression and the Supreme Court's uh, Shelby ruling. So, Thank you for that, for trying. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things to ask about the, uh, d- about this. Uh, and even at the uh, Democratic primary, by the way, uh, Democratic primary debates, the issue was not raised by the moderators, to my knowledge. So you write about that again this week at The Nation. Your headline uh, is the GOP's attack on voting rights was the most undercovered story of 2016. How do we explain this? Well, it was a, it was an unbelievably huge failing, particularly by um, cable and broadcast news, because mm-hmm. they're the ones who ran these debates, right? Uh, for the most part, I mean, the New York Times and the Washington Post did a much better job of covering the issue than uh, cable and broadcast news did. So I don't want to say that the entire media is the same, but particularly the, the media that most of the country watches uh, was terrible here. And I think you know they were uncomfortable with the fact that this was a lot about race, that Republicans were making it harder for people of color to be able to to vote. They were uncomfortable with the fact that this was about partisanship, that Republicans were doing this to Democratic-leaning voters, and they were refused. They were afraid to call a spade a spade. And I think a lot of them just either thought this wasn't an important story, or they were just kind of lazy. Like, it was a lot easier to have a bunch of talking heads on TV than actually go and do some real reporting. And, you know, the the night before the election, I was in Wisconsin, and I turned on CNN, and they, they actually had this debate over voter suppression. They had Corey Lewandowski oh, of the boy. Trump campaign yeah. talking about the issue. This guy knows nothing about voting rights. He doesn't know a thing about it. Instead of having a debate, how about sending a reporter in the field to talk to affected voters? And, like, I was in Wisconsin. Like, there's lots of different people Mm -hmm. that could have done a report from the ground in Wisconsin for CNN or for other networks instead of just having some stupid debate about it that's even worse than not covering it in some ways. So, I mean, I I think it was a variety of factors. But I I basically think that the media just decided this never rose to a critical story. And, and, I mean, there's other issues that the media didn't cover either, right, Brad? They didn't cover climate change. They didn't cover attacks on abortion rights. I mean, there's lots of other issues that millions and millions of Americans care about that just went totally uncovered by the media. But I just found it really shocking that they spent so much time talking about the polls, talking about where the candidates were in these various states, and they couldn't even spend five minutes talking about what the election laws were, how it changed, and the fact that the country's most important civil rights law wasn't giving millions of people the protection that previously they they received. And it's so perverse because, in fact, you know, I, I in one sense, I, I can understand, oh, climate change, that's something that's separate from the election as they see it. Uh, you know, we're only concerned with the with the horse race. Who's going to turn out? Who's going to win? Well, this is all about the horse race, ultimately, as far as who's going to win and who is not, which makes it even more bizarre 
that they don't bother to tell these stories. And and the other thing that's bizarre, they you know, these stories, the stories that you told Ari Berman at The Nation were so at times heartbreaking and heart wrenching, hearing the efforts that people were going through, hearing about the, you know, the, the hundred year old African-American woman who had voted all her life, all of a sudden being purged from the rolls, the 99 year old man, I think uh, just this week. Uh, who, who d- no longer drives, rides his bike everywhere, so his driver's license has expired. Those seem like stories that the mainstream corporate media would love. They're real tearjerkers. Uh, yeah, I mean, and know. They, you know, they could have told they could have told more of these stories. Ronan Farrow did a good piece for the Today Show right before the election um, about some of these stories. But absolutely, I mean, one of the reasons why I tried to tell these stories. Um, at, you know, at, from a narrative, uh, personal point of view, is because I thought it was more affecting to people mm-hmm. that that this isn't just about statistics, mm-hmm. right, and numbers, um, and you know, complicated parts of the Voting Rights Act. That this was really about you know people trying to exercise their most fundamental right in democracy and, and being thwarted um, for no good reason. And it you know it was absolutely scandalous that one party was trying to do this. And, and I think they just got a complete pass. Uh, you know, from the media on this, I think a lot of people weren't aware of what was going on, and, and so, you know, now it's too late. You know, now Donald Trump uh, is, you know, in charge of who gets to run the Justice Department, and you know, Republicans in Congress are are in charge of confirming all of those people, uh, and Republicans control two thirds of states and can do basically whatever they want. So, I mean, we can keep talking about this now, but. The chance to actually do something about it in any yep. meaningful way really did pass uh, with this election. It's going to be much harder to do anything about it now. I, I know you got to go, Ari. Let me give you one quick uh, question here. According to Election Line today, at this point, turnout is hovering right around 55 percent. That's the lowest it's been since 2000. And yet we were told before Election Day in state after state that early voting numbers were being shattered as compared to 2012, etc., uh, there are a number of uh, possible explanations, I suppose, for this disconnect between the early voting and then the election day voting. And I know you got to speculate a little bit here, uh, particularly this early. But what is your thought on that apparent apparent contradiction between those early voting numbers versus uh, the election day turnout? Uh, do we know if there's any correlation uh, between those two in some fashion? Well, it may just be that people who were really enthusiastic decided to vote early in the states where they could, and people who were less likely to vote just decided they were going to vote on election day or not vote at all. And so the the sort of people that, that really wanted to vote didn't wait till election day. And so it seemed like all of this turnout was being shattered, but that's just because people who would have voted anyway decided to vote earlier. Um, and so, er, you know, early voting in and of itself is not something that boosts voter turnout. Mm-hmm. It has to be combined with other things to try to get people from the polls. And, you know, I would love a scenario where we had, you know, the best election laws possible and a process that would also create the best possible candidates and see what turnout would look like. Um, because right now we had a situation where we had some of the worst laws and some of the worst <laughs> candidates. And this is mm-hmm. what we got. You know, mm-hmm. we got an election where. Votes were suppressed all over the place. People hated both candidates. Um, and, and now the least qualified person um, ever is president with one of the lowest turnout elections in U.S. history. 
And and you got to wonder if the media would have covered the story had Democratic states been uh, removing the rights of voters. Like, you know, if you if, if you owned a gun license in their state, you weren't allowed to vote in some fashion if they figured it out. And the Tea Party was outraged about it. You suppose the media would have covered it at that point? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, completely. <laughs> there would have been a huge scandal. And, and not only that, but can you imagine if the situation was reversed and in, in two recent elections, uh, Republicans won the popular vote, but Democrats won the Electoral College. I mean, how crazy the right would be going right now, all the rigged system talk uh, that was going on. And, you know, I tried to be consistent here during the Democratic mm-hmm. primary when states like New York had absurd laws, like making people register six months ahead of time. Yes. To be able- I criticized that wholeheartedly. You did. Throughout the primary, I criticized that kind of stuff. So I think you have to be consistent here. The Democratic Party's hands aren't clean either, particularly in terms of how they set their own rules. Um, but it's absolutely true that, by and large, one party did this. Um, and they needed to be held accountable, and they weren't, and now they control everything, and we're all going to have to deal with it, unfortunately. Unfortunately, uh, but I'm glad to know you're there Except to deal California. with it. California. Oh, oh, yeah. all just move there. Yeah, come on out. We'd love to have you, Ari. But we need you in the rest of the country to tell us to keep covering this, because this fight is uh, going to get, you're right, absolutely ugly. And thank you, by the way, for covering it on all sides. I've taken a lot of hell from a lot of people when I go to bat for, you know, Republican voters and Republican candidates when they get screwed by the system. But yeah, you have to. Voting rights is a nonpartisan issue at its core. And, you know, these stories need to be told. It's about rights, not about right and left. It's about right and wrong. Ari Berman, uh, thank you for everything you've done this year and that I know you'll continue to do once we can uh, make sense of whatever disaster we're now facing. Check out Ari's work as ever at thenation.com. Follow him on the Twitters at Ari Berman, and go buy his book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, even before he adds the extra chapters that I suspect will be coming soon. Hey, Ari. Right, thank, thank you, Brad. Thank you, brother. You, All right, okay, brother. Bye. Take care. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch I've told the truth, I didn't come to fool you Me neither And even though it all went wrong I'll stand before the Lord of song With nothing on my tongue Leonard Cohen, the Canadian poet and novelist who abandoned a promising literary career to become one of the foremost songwriters of the contemporary era, has died. According to an announcement on his Facebook page, he was 82. In an interview with Rolling Stone in 2014, Cohen said he didn't spend much time thinking about how people would remember him. He said, I don't give that much thought. Some people care about their work lasting forever. I have little interest in it. 
Uh, he said, you probably know the great story about Bob Hope. His wife came to him and said, there's two plots available at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. One looks at some beautiful cypress trees. One looks over the valley. Which do you think you'd prefer? He said, surprise me. That's the way I feel about posterity and how I'm remembered. Surprise me. Uh, Leonard Cohn was, uh, was, as I said, 82, and we actually started our uh, Election Day show with his song, uh, Democracy. We, we uh, turn to Leonard Cohn a lot. He will be missed, but his music will live on. All right, uh, in our closing uh, few minutes here... <clears throat> Uh, even if that is a bit heart-wrenching. And, you know, it's kind of amazing because that song has been recorded so many times, that Hallelujah song, used uh, in these in-memoriam reels all the time. I think that was the one they used in the recent uh, Oscars, the last Oh, right, that was. yes, yes. I think they actually, uh, I can't remember who it was who sang that. It's appropriate to play it for him. Play it for him, indeed. Um, in any event, uh, speaking of heart-wrenching, uh, the Daily Show correspondent uh, Hassan Minaj who I actually think is is Iranian. Uh, he was speaking during the Daily Show's um, w- one of the Daily Show's broadcasts. I've I've taken some comfort uh, from uh, looking at other people's uh, response to all of this, as I know people have looking at our responses to all of this. And in any event, uh, as it looked like uh, Donald Trump, as these results were just you know beginning to firm up for people around the country. Uh, Hassan Minaj uh, had this story. Remember, he's Iranian, and uh, among other things he had to say, uh, here's a story that he had to report about his own mother. This is a true story. My mom is out of the country right now. She's visiting my grandma. And she's a U.S. citizen. She's lived here 30 years. She's on the phone with me last night, and she's like, Hassan, I don't know if I can come back until February. Am I going to be able to get back into the country? And the fact that I can't tell her yes with 100% certainty is heartbreaking. And there are a lot of people telling me, hey, man, don't worry. Trump's not really going to ban all Muslims. But I don't know, man. That is my mom. And I need her back home because I love her. And she owes me $300. <laughs> Thank you, so, uh, yeah, both heart-wrenching and kind of funny. But, you know, I, 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 this stuff needs to be said. I, I need to say it to myself uh, every few minutes, frankly. Uh, this isn't just happening to me. It's, this is happening to all of us. We are all feeling this pain. And it is, uh, no doubt, scarier for some than others. Guys like Hassan Minaj, whose mother, who's Iranian, whose mother is out of the country. She's an American citizen, but yep. she's out of the country. So we, yeah, we are all, we are all of us feeling this fear. We're we're here with you together. Uh, it's rough, but we're feeling it together. If we know how bad this is, and my job, I think, as, as someone now in the media, has always been to help educate the electorate. If we know how bad this is, we can then try to figure out together what to do about it, because we all have a stake in this in some way. And so you are not alone. In the sound, uh, the sound of my voice, you are not alone. A lot of us are feeling this. Here was Stephen Colbert on CBS's uh, Late Show the day after the election as well. Four years. We got four very interesting years in front of us. Uh, walking around the streets of New York today, a lot of people uh, a little rough. Yeah, you know, man. you can see it in their eyes. 
Um, there's no way around it. This, um, this is what it feels like when America's made great again. I, uh, <laughs> I was wondering, and uh, I was really hoping it would feel better, because this sucks. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, like I say, you know, uh, perversely enough, I guess, uh, Colbert and, and Hassan Minaj, uh, all of that made me feel a little bit better about what's going on because it's a reminder, again, that we, all of us, all of us, we are all in this together. We will figure this out together. We will fight this out together. So don't turn on each other. We cannot afford that right now. We will stand together and we will survive this together. We are not alone. So love yourselves and love your friends and love your family. And let's keep working together. We will figure this out. As I have said before, we will be okay. And I love you all very much. I love you, Desi Doyen. Thank you, our producer, Desi Doyen. And uh, thanks to my guest today, Ari Berman of The Nation. My thanks to all of you uh, for spending a portion of your day or night with us, for supporting our work. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who help us continue to do what we do. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate. And drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And I'm on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. Angie Coiro will be in for us on the next thrilling episode. We will be back with you thereafter. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, America. Good luck, world. <laughs>